Let's pray one more time. Father, I ask for your help now to open some more of this passage in Romans 1 so that your word is seen for what it really is. And I pray that our hearts would fall out of love with any inappropriate use of money, sex, or power and fall more and more in to love with your great glory so that we would never exchange the glory of God for images, especially the one in the mirror. So God, come, display your supreme glory, your supreme worth and value to the hearts in this room. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. Everyone knows God, but seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear until you touch. So come, open the eyes of the blind hearts and open the ears of the deaf. Grant, I pray, that miracles would be happening now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the three messages are defining uh, money, sex, and power, defeating, that's this message, the dangers of money, sex, and power, and tomorrow, deploying the potentials of money, sex, and power, all of it under the banner of living in the light. So here we are at message number two, defeating the dangers of money, sex, and power by living in the light. And we'll pick up now where we left off in Romans 1. So if you have a Bible, it might be helpful for you to be looking at Romans 1 with me. Paul makes the connection here. We're going to start with sex, and even though the money, sex, and power is usually the way you say it, because Paul starts with sex, and uh, sex becomes the showcase illustration of what happens when you exchange the glory of God for images of mortal man. And we, we don't think, you know, in our Western countries so much about exchanging him for reptiles, but this is a broadly applicable Bible that's good for us and good for every culture, and we do exchange him for images of man. And man is central in this world, and we have exchanged God for images of ourselves. And what's unique about exchanging God for images of ourselves is that the sex of ourselves is the same sex, which is why he talks about homosexuality here. Homosexuality just happens to be among all the ways that sin has been distorted by sin in all of us. It just happens to be the most vivid way of seeing the connection between the exchange of God for ourselves and the exchange of partners for the wrong partner. So let's start again at chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Although they knew God, 
they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, the word light is not in the text, but the word darkness is in the text. You see that in verse 21. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So instead of contrasting darkness and light in this text, Paul contrasts darkness with glory, which is not very different from light. The glory of God is the the radiance, the effulgence of His bright holiness. Just to, just to give you a little, we use the word glory of God so often, and I'm, I'm using it over and over again in this message. When it says in, in, in Isaiah that the um, angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His. Yes, but you would expect them to say holiness. Wouldn't you? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His holiness. And He didn't say that. Why? And this is, this is the best text, it seems to me, to just capture a little glimpse of of the difference between holiness and glory and what is meant in the Bible by glory, I think the reason the word shifts from the angels looking God in the face as much as you can as a created being and and say, holy, holy, holy. That means uh, transcendently pure and good and beyond all sin, separate from all evil, infinitely valuable, like one-of-a-kind diamond in the world. You are one-of-a-kind, holy, set apart as supremely valuable among all the values in the world. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. Glory is what happens when holiness goes radiant and public. It's, it's, the, it's the light streaming out of the infinitely beautiful and the infinitely perfect and transcendently pure. So our experience of God's holiness is as His holiness is manifest through His perfections in the world, it is radiant with glory. So the word, I think the word glory is almost interchangeable with with uh, radiance or beauty of intrinsic holiness. When it goes extrinsic, when it goes public, when we experience it, when it touches us through the gospel or through the, the beautiful sky outside or through His works in the world, we see it as a spiritual beauty. So that's what I mean when I repeatedly now talk about talk about the glory of God. So, darkness here is not being contrasted explicitly with light, 
though you can't help but think about light when you think about darkness. It's being contrasted with glory. Verse 21, beginning of the verse, they did not glorify Him as God. Verse 23, first part of the verse, they exchanged the glory of God for images. So what he's saying is that in our unregenerate, not yet born again, natural first birth condition, we know God in one sense. He's revealing Himself continually in the world. And in the Word, wherever the gospel is preached, and in another sense, we are suppressing that truth, and we're blinding ourselves, and we're turning away with preference for other things from the beauty of God. And so it can say here, although they knew God, verse 21, they did not respond by saying, you are glorious, you are beautiful, you are infinitely valuable, you are my treasure. The world doesn't say that about God. Adam and Eve thought they were doing well when they preferred something over God. But verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And we have been foolish ever since. So living in the darkness, living in the darkness means seeing God as minimally desirable or undesirable or non-existent foolishness. So living in the dark is looking at God and seeing nothing desirable, nothing compelling, nothing beautiful, nothing valuable. That's darkness. And I'm, I'm looking into these lights right here. It would be like looking right into these lights, and it is totally dark to my eyes. There is nothing beautiful or bright about Him at all. So they exchange the glory of God for images. And we always explain our non-preferences for our preferences, for our greater desires. And in the darkness, you can't see reality for what it is. The world cannot see God for what He really is. They know Him enough to suppress Him and say that He's undesirable and worth exchanging. So living in the light, and my definition of our theme now, living in the light is seeing God as supremely glorious, supremely beautiful, more beautiful than anything in your life, more valuable than anything in your life. And you never exchange what is most valuable. You keep, you cleave, you hold to it, you die for it. You won't let it go. This is most precious to me. This is most beautiful to me, most valuable, most satisfying. That's that's what it means to live in the light and to glorify God. He would be more precious to you than anything else. And if He's not right now, your 
interaction with these messages should be just a quiet whispering to God in your heart. God, that sounds like a foreign language to me. I don't even think in those categories. I just live my life and do the next thing. And Would you, if, if what he's saying is true, would you work on me? Would you open me? Would you give me a taste bud for that kind of beauty that I don't seem to have? That's what I would be doing if I were you and this sounded strange. Now, having set up why we're existing, namely we, we exist to know and experience and enjoy and reflect the value, the glory, the beauty of God back to Him, He now makes the connection with sex. Isn't that remarkable? Four times. This is unmistakable and amazing. Four times He makes the connection between the distortion of the relationship vertically and the darkness there with the distortion of the sexual relationship horizontally and the darkness there. So let's see these four times where Paul does this. Number one, the connection between verse 23 and 24. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, verse 24, therefore, that's a very important word, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So the exchange vertically, verse 23, they exchange the glory of God, results in God handing them over to horizontal, dishonorable passions of the, bo of the body in, in lust. So where does, where does lust come from? Where does the, the brokenness of our God-given, beautiful, sexual reality come from? Where does that brokenness come from? It comes from the brokenness of exchange. Here it is again, the connection between verse 24 and 25. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and here comes the other important word besides therefore. Because. Why did he do that? Why did God hand us over to this, this mess, this brokenness? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Another exchange. Same exchange. The truth about God, the glory about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature, that's us, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So he says the cause, don't miss the word because there, the cause of lust and impurity and the dishonoring of the body is the embrace of a lie about God. The darkness of creation is owing to the darkness as we look at the Creator. We believe we are more valuable than God. Our friends are more valuable to us than God is to us. 
And sexual pleasure is more valuable to God than, than God to us. We have exchanged him for a lie, and God hands us over. Number three, the connection between verses 25 and 26. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, verse 26, for this reason, you see it? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. So three times so far, he has said that the cause, the reason for God handing us over to the dishonoring of our own good God-given passions is because we traded God and we traded his truth and we traded his glory for other things which they are not. They're not more preferable. Here's the fourth one. The relationship between the two halves of verse 28. Since, very important word, and since they did not, now the ESV says here, see fit to acknowledge. You know what your version says. Here's my literal translation of dokimazo. Here's the way I would translate it. Since they did not approve, that's the usual translation of dokimazo, they, they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. That's a literal translation. See fit to acknowledge God, that's, that's okay, but I think you feel the, the horror of it if you, you say they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. So, the, the picture is, back in verse 18, they know God and they suppress truth. So, God is approaching them in manifold ways, us in manifold ways, and we consider that enough to be accountable, we know, and we disapprove. I don't want you in here. I don't want you in my head. I don't want you in my heart. I disapprove of having you in my knowledge. This is where atheism comes from. It's where skepticism comes from. It's, it's not at first an, an ignorance problem. Nobody's main problem is an ignorance problem. Everybody's main problem is a preference problem. I don't want you in my head. I don't want you in my heart. I don't want you to be supremely valuable. I will not have a God in my life who is supremely valuable. I just won't. That's the meaning of the first half of verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge or did not approve, I don't want it, I don't approve of having God in my knowledge, therefore God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So four times... It just could not be clearer, repetitively clearer, that the root issue of our horizontal distortions, homosexual and heterosexual, are rooted in, the root of it is this exchange. I don't want you in here. And if he's not in here, everything is going wrong in the world. He couldn't have made it more clear. Now, the reason I think he happens to focus on homosexuality here, which he only does like three times in his letters, and this is a big one, 
The reason I think homosexuality gets attention here is because Paul sees it as one of the most vivid horizontal illustrations of the vertical exchange. He makes this explicit. So here we're saying, I see God, I see beauty, I see worth, I see value, and I don't want this one, I don't want you, I exchange that for this. And so I've got my, my idols over here, whatever. And if you say, now, why, why would that trigger homosexuality in his mind? Why, why would he go there? Why not go to fornication or adultery? We've got some pretty big exchanges there, like a wife or a prostitute. That's, why not go there? And I think Paul would say, well, I do go there. Just read it, understand it. But the reason, I think, is because he, well, he makes the reason pretty clear. Let's read it. So verse 25 we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Now, the verse 26 and 27, for their women exchanged. So verse 23, exchanged the glory of God for other things. Verse 25, exchanged truth for a lie. Verse 26, exchanged men for women. That's what he saw. That's what he, that's what he thought of. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what Paul, I think the reason he tackles homosexuality here is because as he looks around at, at the all kinds of sexual distortions in his culture, which are pretty much like ours, um, he, he says that's amazing, an amazing correlation that the exchange vertically of the glory of God for the glory of images of mortal man. And what's the one you see in the mirror? What, what, what is the image I see in the mirror? I see a man in the mirror. So the most clear exchange would be, I don't want you, I want him. And homosexuality is the picture of that. A, ch a choice of a man, preferring a man, Choosing to have sex with a man is a lived-out parable of this exchange. Now, so are all the others, right? So is fornication. So is adultery. Adultery exchanges a wife, a covenant wife, for another woman or man. And fornication exchanges the gift of single purity to the glory of God for disobedience to that gift. And lust exchanges purity for pornography. Now, there's, everywhere there's sin, there's exchange. And it's all rooted in the vertical 
exchange. So, summing up sex here, then we're going to turn to money. The danger of sex, which is what we're talking about, not the potential today, but the danger of sex is that because our hearts are distorted vertically and we, we prefer other things to God, our hearts are also distorted horizontally and we prefer illicit pleasures to godly ones. The source of all my preference for illicit pleasure, pleasures that the Bible says would only harm me in the end and not, and not bless me, is because I have made the insane and suicidal decision that God is not preferable to other things. The, the picture I have in my mind is that if, if, you, if you have a solar system and, the, and, and uh, one planet is sex, another planet is money, another planet is power, what you need at the center of the solar system is the glory of the sun with this massive gravitational power to hold those powerful planets in their wonderful orbit. And isn't it wonderful when a person can handle millions of dollars in a godly way for the good of the world? Isn't it wonderful when a man with huge sexual drives or a woman can, can manage that and, and never become like a Vesuvius just spraying his, his, his erotic desires everywhere, but can walk in, in chastity, marry a woman in holiness, be faithful to her to the end. That's a glorious orbit for sex, and so it is with power. And so what we've done in exchanging the glory is, I don't want the sun, I want the moon. I want the moon at the center of my solar system. And when you put the moon at the center of your solar system, guess what happens to the planets? They're wildly out of control. And they will, they will crash into people, they will kill people, they will ruin marriages, they'll ruin societies. I have little hope for, for America after yesterday where the Supreme Court decided that in every state now in our nation, you may not make it illegal to perform a so-called same-sex marriage. The, the Bible, it makes me weep what's coming. The, the Bible is so clear that those who do such things, not those who struggle with that brokenness, but those who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, to institutionalize a suicidal path cannot survive. Which is what we did at a level that is absolutely, historically, breathtaking. Not very new to Europeans, but breathtaking historically. When in the history of the world has there ever been such a thing as is happening today? But this is not a seminar on homosexuality. That just happens to be Paul's choice, so I said it. Let's talk about money. Why is money dangerous? What, what is it that creates... Um, here we have this symbol, this currency, that is a culturally defined representation of, of a certain level of value that we can trade for Diet Coke or pizza, whatever. We can trade it 
How can that be a problem? How can that be dangerous? Well, the Bible is filled with warnings about the danger of money. Have you ever considered, let's go at it like this. I mean, there's so many texts I could have chosen here. Let's try this. Have you ever asked the question whether the first of the Ten Commandments and the last of the Ten Commandments are the same commandment? I wonder if you even remember what they are. (laughs) So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. And the last one is, you shall not covet. Paul says, Colossians 3, 5, put away all covetousness, which is idolatry. Oh, so the first and last commandments are the same commandment. Only the last one bends it out horizontally so you know what's really going on. Let's try to define these commandments. So the first commandment is you shall, you shall not have um, any other gods before me. What, what does that mean? The, the, uh, the words surrounding it, verse 5, I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. So, okay, put jealousy together with, you shall not have any gods before me. God is like a husband, Israel is like a wife, and he's jealous if she, if she consorts with another man, God, another God. And so what, what does not have any other gods? gods before you mean. It means your your love, your affection, your delight belong to me, God says. Belong to me. Only me. You, You can't mix it up. All throughout the Old Testament, idolatry was called adultery. So, You're giving your affections away. You're desiring things more than you're desiring me. I'm jealous. A husband ought to feel that. Jealousy is only a sin when it's all out of proportion and and in the wrong places. A husband who sees his wife fall in love with another man and doesn't feel jealous is sick. He should feel rage of jealous. And he should win her back. And she should repent. God feels rage at his idolatrous people. And wrath comes from God. The last commandment is you shall not covet. And Paul quotes it that way. He doesn't just say covet your neighbor's wife, covet your whatever. He, he just, in Romans 7, he says the commandment, you shall not covet. What does covet mean? I remember as a kid trying to define covet, and I never could. I always thought, well, it means want what you have. I want what you have. That's, that's not what covet means. Covet is much more widely used than just wanting what somebody else has. And what's interesting is that in, in the Old Testament and the New, the Hebrew and the Greek, the word simply means desire. Like desire. And so the question then is, well, what, 
when does desire become covet? Because desires aren't bad. You can desire what's good, and you can desire what's bad. And so when does, when does a desire along the way, either in intensity or for something, when does it become bad? When does it become the coveting kind of desire? And my way of answering that is to take the Tenth Commandment and put it together with what we just said about the First Commandment. Okay, Paul says covetous is idolatry, and we've just seen God uh, as jealous for his, his wife's affection and attention and glorification and love and devotion and treasuring, and here we have covetous called idolatry, and it's, a desi- it's just desire for, for anything. So here's my attempt at a definition based on that connection, I would say, um, don't desire anything in a way that would express lack of contentment in God. Covetousness is a desire that is, go, a desire that is going up because the desire for God is going down. For anything, for Bible reading, preaching, writing books, anything that you desire and the desire is coming stronger because the desire for God is getting weaker, that's covetousness. It's evil. Doesn't matter what you're desiring. And so I think what we've seen from Romans 1 and now from the Ten Commandments is where our exchange for the glory of God, the value of God, the beauty of God, the all satisfying worth of God, where that exchange is happening and our desire for Him and our satisfaction in Him is getting weaker. Other desires are going to come in to fill the, fill the void, and they get stronger. All of that's called covetousness. It doesn't matter whether you, what you're desiring for. Desire for money, desire for power, desire for sex, it is covetousness. Now, we, we usually think of covetousness in relation to money. So let's, let's test this definition, this analysis of the Ten Commandments, with Paul's biggest statement about money. Okay, if you want to go there, it's uh, 1 Timothy 6. 5 through 10. This is Paul's most extended paragraph about the dangers of money. And, and let's see what he says about where does it come from? What, what's wrong? Why does money go wrong? So I'll start reading at verse uh, 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. People who are this is remarkable to me. I had not seen this till I was preparing for this, that the way he introduces the people here who are the problem are described in the terms of Romans 1 that we already saw. And I thought, I've got to work on this to see, okay, is that intentional or is that just kind of the way the language works accidentally? But here's what he says, the people who are depraved, that's what God gave people over to in Romans 1, in mind, in mind, just like in Romans 1, Deprived of the truth, just like they suppressed the truth in Romans 1. So he's dealing with money. There he dealt with sex. So here's, it seems like 
it's a justification for my saying that Romans 1, even though it dealt with sex, is applicable to all kinds of exchanges in life. So, people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, shysters who use preaching and get in their jets and fly to Africa from Dallas, sell their prosperity gospel to 50,000 people by telling their pigs will have eight piglets every time they bear and their wives won't miscarry, get on their planes and go back with money bulging out of their pockets. That's what he's talking about. Do they fly from London? I don't know. They do fly from Dallas, and they do fly from all over America. That's our worst export. The prosperity gospel is our worst export, and we got a lot of bad exports. I don't like it. The God, but godliness with contentment, now there's going to be the key. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, I think that just represents the basics. He didn't mean to leave out housing. You know, it just, it, the point is food and clothing stand for the, the basics of life. If we have food and clothing, we, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, okay, desire, desire. What's wrong here? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Sounds like he's talking about sex. That's exactly the way he was talking about sex. Same thing with power, sex, or money. If you crave it because you've exchanged God, your desire is rising because your desire for Him is going down, it's going to kill you. That's what he says. It plunges people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this covetousness, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You talk about suicidal desires. It's not just distorted homosexuality or heterosexuality that's distorted and misused. It's money. It is very interesting, is it not, that when Paul lists the sins in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, where those who practice homosexuality are listed, right beside it is greed. Just as big a problem, killing more people, which is what we have, have here. So money is dangerous. Now, you're, you're saying, perhaps you should be saying, it's not the money that's dangerous, is it? I mean, the paper, the coins, it's the... That's right. That's right. That is absolutely right. Um, no, it's not. It's not the paper that kills you. It's not the metal in your pocket that kills you. But Jesus said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say it's hard for a man who loves his riches to get into the kingdom of heaven. He just said it's hard if you've got a lot of money. Why would he say that? Because money's dangerous. Money itself is always beckoning us, desire me, 
desire me. You can get so many good things if you have me. You can have so much security. You can have so much power. You can have so much status. Oh, desire me. That's a dangerous invitation. And it's crying out of your pocket like that all the time. Or no, it's really crying out of somebody else's pocket because you don't have any in your pocket. And you really want to have more in your pocket because the lie is, if you have me, you can have anything. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, and Paul himself, or Jesus, again says, Matthew 13, 22, the deceitfulness of riches come, comes in and chokes the word. Deceitfulness of riches. Money is a liar. It's a liar. Will you believe the lie and suppress the truth that God is infinitely valuable? God meets every need. God is precious beyond words. If I die, I have God in everything. Or do you listen to money? No, 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 no. That God stuff, that religion stuff is going to make for such a boring life, and I will make your life unbelievably exciting and safe and secure and successful and satisfying. I hate that. All of you, most of you, have potential for earning. And this text says, the desire to be rich is absolutely deadly. Let me give you the verses again, I mean the words again from verses 9 and 10. Temptation, snare, many senseless and harmful desires, plunging people into ruin and destruction, pierced with many pangs. Where do they come from? desire for money. So, what, what's the key that prevents that? Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. What's the protection against this lie coming out of the pocket, lie coming off the television, lie coming off every advertisement, advert? Lies, lies, lies coming at us. What, what, what's the protection from the lie? The truth that there is contentment, a deep, unshakable, profound, satisfied, sweet, happy treasuring of God that money cannot come close to and will carry you right through every trial, right through every trouble, and right through death with everlasting joy. And money will let you down. It will let you down over and over again in this life, and at the end, it totally lets you down. It is a wicked liar. And so don't buy it. Don't buy the lie. What? will be your protection from the two dangers of having none of it and too much of it. And Paul gives the answer in Philippians 4.12. I have learned the secret. Do you know what it is? I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Many of you are, are wealthy. That's not a sin. But there's a secret that keeps it from being a sin. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Some of you are poorer. 
I have learned the secret. What's the secret of poverty and the secret of, of wealth? And I think the answer is Philippians 3.8. So 4.12, the secret, 3.8, the explanation of the secret. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul looks at wealth, and he's not tempted by it, because Jesus is supremely valuable. He looks at lack and poverty, and he's not tempted to get mad at God and start compromising his message. He's, he's, he's got Jesus, who's infinitely valuable. That's what he says in chapter 3. Verse 8, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the danger of money is not in the paper. It's not even primarily in the quantity you have or don't have. It is in the lie that money speaks to us every day. Namely, if you have me, you will have more status, more worth, more uh, pleasures, more power, and God is then exchanged. I just exchange God for whatever it takes to get more of that. And the secret to protect us is to fix our eyes on the supreme value of Jesus and never exchange the glory of God for anything. Lastly, short on power. So it is with power. Sex, money, power. If we're living in the light, we're living in this light. The light of the glory of God, which has as an essential constituent of it, God's zeal to be supremely powerful in the world and the source of all power. In other words, God's glory consists partly in His passion to be known and loved as the, the source and the sustainer and the owner of all power. And that means that the darkness, walking in the darkness, is feeling some power in you, or power that you could get, and not rejoicing that it is from God, it belongs to God, to be used by God, it is all God's, He gave it, He owns it, He sustains it, He gets to dictate it. That's we don't see that. We, that's darkened. We suppress that truth, and we just love the feeling, I'm God. I'm like God. I don't need God. I'm God. And that's, that's where the modern world is. So let me just give you some verses that tell me that, that God's purpose in the world when it comes to power is to be the powerful one who gives power for the sake of magnifying that he's the powerful one. Any use of power by human beings that draws attention to the self as the powerful one is prostitution of power. Here are the verses. 
Romans 9:17 For this very purpose I raised you up Pharaoh that I might show my power in you Romans 9:22 What if God desiring to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction Jeremiah 16:2 Behold I will make them know my power and my might they shall know that my name is Yahweh the Lord 2 Corinthians 4:7 We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us in other words all ministry in the commission may God give you more power may God give you power supernatural power that rocks the city and may it be in jars of clay who know that you are jars of clay and therefore you are spring loaded as a gun image <laughs> you are spring loaded to say it's of god it's of god so that the more effectiveness he gives you the more power he gives you the more glory he gets because you are so ready to admit your clay potishness and so eager for God to be known as the powerful one or 2 Corinthians 12:9 my grace is sufficient for you Jesus is talking my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in your weakness you want to be powerful get ready to be wounded Isn't that what it says? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Since 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 I write a lot of books and I speak at a lot of places, people people come up to me and they say, "How do you handle pride?" You know what I say? I mean there's lots of there's lots of good answers to that question of what you should do if you're tempted to be proud. But one of them is I don't handle pride, God handles pride. And he knows how to attack any vestige of it and it never feels good. And it is so sweet and so loving. So I won't talk about all that because it's too private, right? it's too family oriented in many cases it's too physically oriented in many cases just know that don't worry about it if you're his he will cut you down so that he gets all the glory and one last text john 19:10 pilot said to jesus do you not know that i have power to release you and power to crucify you And Jesus said, "You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above." The key to not taking the good gift of power and making it an idolatrous self-exaltation is to hear Jesus say that to you. You don't have any power that my father has not given you
What are you going to do with his gifts? Make yourself look central? (laughs) Come on. He has given you money and sex and power because all of them, let's use this as a little closing summary, all of them are designed to show value, what you value. So money is a cultural representation that you can exchange for value. What do you value? If you value God, you make him look great in the way you use your money. Sex, it's, it's one of those pleasures that we love and want, and it's a a test of whether we will, in God's way, restrain it or release it in a way that makes it a taste of His glory in His way or prostitutes it. And power is the capacity to turn that into what you want, and therefore what you want will show the world whether you believe that power is from God or not. So that's my effort to lift up the the three kinds of dangers that exist with money, sex, and power. And now for the the positive, I mean, that's an agenda for life, making Christ supreme, God supreme in your life so that it functions as the sun at the center of the solar system of your life so that the planets of, of power, sex, and money are just beautifully circling the sun of the glory of God and reflecting it as they ought, or whether you've ripped God out of the center of your life and put the, the moon or something weird in there and become a solar system that's going zoom, 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 and they're crashing into each other and everything's coming apart in the world, which it is, and oh, what a message we have. Through Jesus Christ to put God back as the flaming, blazing center of our affections will change the communities of commission, and God willing, in America and here and around the world, turn back the tide of idolatry. Father in heaven, we don't know, we don't know what the short-term future of the world is. We know the long-term, you're coming, you're going to set everything right, all evil will be banished to outer darkness, your people will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, the new heavens and the new earth will not have any dangers anymore and we will be at home. But in the meantime, Lord, we do pray for great awakening. We don't want to surrender Britain or America or any people group on the planet to the power of sin. We are a force with the gospel, and the Holy Spirit is indomitable. So come, Give the commission great courage. Give them great faith. Give them great hope that though they may feel small and embattled, you are God. And the satisfaction you give is irresistible in your people. Spread it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.